Well, please take your Bibles now and turn with me to Luke's Gospel in chapter 5. Luke's Gospel, chapter 5, where we'll look at the first 11 verses this morning. This is on page 860 of the church Bibles. Luke chapter 5, reading from verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him, that is Jesus, to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask now for your help as we come to the study of this passage. We pray that you would open our minds and illuminate our hearts, that we might behold the glory of Jesus contained in these verses. Amen. Well, there are some passages in Scripture that are so familiar to us that we almost just skim through them as we read, assuming that we essentially know already what they're about. There are some passages, of course, that we read that are, that are new to us. Maybe we've read them uh, once or twice, but they're hard to get our minds around, and every time we come across them, we really have to wrestle with them, to try and grasp what's going on and how it moves the story of redemption forward. There are some passages that while we might have read them time and again, but as we sit at our devotionals or hear them read and preached, it's as if we have never come across them before, and they suddenly strike us with one of those huh moments. It appears as as completely new information to us, and as we read it, a new leaf of the gospel unfolds, and we behold more of its beauty. But there are passages that we have read or heard read and taught again and again to the point that we simply assume that we already know what they mean and how they function in the story, and so we might tend to just skim a little faster through them as we we read. And, And if we're honest, this passage is likely one of them. If I was to ask you right now, what is what is this passage about? You would probably say, well, it's about Jesus calling his first disciples. And it is. And that's probably what your editor's title says in the 
italics in your Bibles at the beginning of this passage. Or if you look in the notes in your study Bible, it will say something like the, what the ESV study Bible says. It says, Jesus calls common fishermen to leave everything and become his first disciples as fishers of men. And that's true. But there's actually a lot more going on in this passage than simply Jesus calling his first disciples. Just, just look at it again. And, and we can start, can't we, by just doing the exegetical math. Out of these 11 verses, only one really focuses on Jesus calling Simon, Peter, James, and John to be his disciples. And really, it's only half of one verse the specific application at the end of verse 10, do not be afraid from now on, you will be catching men. But there's really a lot more going on in this passage than simply that, a lot more that is actually more broadly applicable and which is more closely tied to the story that Luke has been telling us so far. Remember, Luke has brought us now to witness the public ministry of Jesus Christ. And you remember the heart of that public ministry has been the proclamation that Isaiah's anticipated year of the Lord's favor has been fulfilled in the arrival of Jesus Christ. It was the great revelation that in Jesus Christ, the return to a world of peace and harmony, the world of, of rest that flowed from reconciliation with God and and is founded in a renewed fellowship with him, has now come in Christ's arrival. It was the thing that all the world has longed for ever since humanity was expelled from the garden after Adam's sin. But you remember the curse upon Cain. God said to Cain that, that because of his sin, he would be a restless wanderer on the face of the earth. It was really perfect encapsulation of all of our predicaments in our sin, always wandering, always searching, always moving, and never finding a place to be at peace. Like Cain, we so often try to kick against that spiritual reality. What was it that Cain did almost immediately after that curse was proclaimed upon him in Genesis 4. What did Cain do? Cain went and he built a city. He built the first city. And what is a city? It is the most permanent habitation that we could possibly conceive of. It was Cain looking into the face of God and saying with a set jaw that he would kick against him with all of his might. If God had said that Cain would be a wanderer, then Cain would set down the deepest roots he possibly could. But what is it that we see in the story of Cain's descendants? We're given his genealogy, aren't we? Cain bore Enoch. Enoch bore Irad. Irad bore Mahujael. Mahujael fathered uh, Methushael. And Methushael fathered Lamech. And what was Lamech's boast? What was the song that he sang to his wives? Genesis 4, 23, Ada and Zelai, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold and Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. 
And it's not the song of a man at peace. Four generations on, Cain's descendants filled with the consuming tempest of hatred, a storm of violence boiling in their hearts. Lamech, a man consumed with hatred and absorbed by his insecurity and his desperate need to try and establish himself and secure himself over and against other men. It's a mirror. Maybe you've never had quite the same devouring hatred. Maybe you have. Maybe you've been a violent man, and your insecurity has come out in a domineering attitude towards others. You've never really felt secure unless you've known that other people are afraid of you. Maybe your life has been one of cynical manipulation, trying to bend all around you to your will, little psychological games, playing people off one another, trying to control the flow of information so that people always rely on you. Maybe it's been extreme like that. Maybe you have been a lamech in your lifetime. For most of us, though, probably it's a lot more mundane, but still in the same strain, still a quest to try and find peace and rest by trying to control your environment as much as possible, doing everything in your power to make sure that your kids are protected. Because if they are safe, then you'll be okay. If only you can guard them enough, if only you can get them into the right school and make sure that they have the right friends and do the right sports so that they are safe and successful, then you'll be okay. Your life consumed by the control of your children's future. Or maybe you work and work and work because the idea of losing your job is more than you can bear. So you work and work and work and you make yourself invaluable to your company, a person to be depended on, a person central to the productivity of the organization so that your job is secure because that's what holds your heart the validation of your boss, the praise of your co-workers, that constant feedback loop that, loop that tells you that you are significant because you are good at your job. But it's futile and exhausting. Like Cain, even building a city did not bring peace. Everything we seek is temporary. Every vacation ends. Every, every drunk gets a hangover. Every Every child leaves the nest. Every career ends in retirement. But what Jesus had proclaimed in the synagogue in Nazareth back in chapter 4 is that in His arrival, that peace and that rest that we crave has actually arrived, that in Him it is actually obtainable. That in His arrival, a year of jubilee has been declared, that year that the prophets anticipated by describing it, you remember, as a time when, when every man would sit under His vine and under His fig tree, and no one would make Him afraid anymore. 
a time when everyone in Israel would invite his neighbor to come under his vine, a time not of, of combative opposition, but a time of peaceful generosity, a time to simply enjoy the abundance of the Lord. That's what Jesus has been proclaiming. That's what Luke has been bringing us to see is at the heart of the, of the gospel. And what's it all rooted in? It's all rooted in the Lord's favor, a time of true peace and rest that flows out of hearts that are at rest in the presence of God, a time of true peace and rest where the guilt of our sin has been removed and all of our sins have been washed away. The people of God to use the psalmist imagery, the people of God cleansed with hyssop and purified and made whiter than the snow so that we are able to simply be at peace in the presence of God. So that threefold holiness that we sang of at the beginning of the service is not a threat to us anymore, but something that we love and delight in. Restored to God knowing that our worth and our significance is all wrapped up in Him. That if the King of kings, if the Lord of the cosmos, if the true and living God calls me His own, if He has set His affection on me and granted me all the blessings that He can bestow, then everything else falls away. It's been the theme of Christ's ministry, not just in the synagogue in Nazareth, but in Capernaum as well. It's not just been in His preaching, it's been in His dominance of the devils, it's been in His healing of diseases, demonstrating the pushing back of sin and its effects and the restoration of the world as it was meant to be happy and holy and very good. And now as we come to the lake of Gennesaret or the Sea of Tiberias or the Sea of Galilee, as you might otherwise know it, it's the same theme that Luke is continuing on here. Jesus comes to the lake, and the crowd is pressing in on him to hear him preaching. It's a good pressing. This is more Capernaum than, than Nazareth. Right? This is a crowd filled with astonishment as they as they hear him preach, a, a crowd that's amazed at the, at the goodness of the gospel that he's proclaiming to, him, to them. And, and the crowd is so large that Jesus is running out of room. And so he asked Simon to take him out in his boat so that he can more effectively teach the people of, of what this year of Jubilee means for them. The boat's a makeshift pulpit and the beach forming a natural amphitheater. And that audience is important for understanding what these 11 verses mean. Right? Look at verse 4. When Jesus had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a, a catch. Right? What, what he's about to do is fundamentally connected to what he has just been saying to the crowd. What's Jesus doing? He's giving an illustration of what he's just been preaching. And what's he just been preaching? Well, I think we go to chapter 4, verse 43, the good news of the kingdom of God. He's preaching what he always preached, the gospel of the year of the Lord's favor, the good news that in him the longing of our hearts has been fulfilled and that in him we are reunited to God and we are able to find rest for our souls. 
And so Jesus preaching to this crowd, telling them of, of all of the culmination of redemptive history now found in him, telling this crowd of, of the good news, of this peace and rest that is found in him and that is found in the favor of the Lord in and through him. As Jesus concludes this sermon, he asks Simon to take him out and to put down his nets. And what happens? Despite laboring all night and coming up short, despite working and working and working and catching nothing but water, now Simon puts down his net and the catch is so large that the nets are breaking and they need other boats to come in and help them bring it in. What, what's, what's going on? Well, this isn't Jesus giving a test of faith to Simon, as if if Simon does what he's told, then he qualifies to be Jesus' disciple. This is not just an elaborate illustration of the ministry that Simon and James and John will be given by Jesus when they, verse 10, become fishers of men. I think there's something else going on here, something much more fundamental. With this, with this miracle, with this catch, Jesus is giving to his audience on the beach, who are watching all of this, he is giving to them what we could call an enacted parable. Right? We see this in other places in Scripture, don't we? Jeremiah called by the Lord to go and take the, the sa his sash and, and bury it by the Euphrates. It's a strange passage. But what is he doing? It's an enacted parable. That sash was to demonstrate the, the exile that the people were being sent into. And then the glorious return from that exile. So Jeremiah was then to go and dig it up and bring it back. Right? Or we think of Isaiah being called by the Lord to, to lie on his side for a, a, a long time. And then turn over and lie on his other side. And it's, and it's bizarre. And we think, what's going on? Well, it's, a, it's an enacted parable. Isaiah's preaching illustrated then demonstrated by something he does that was to, to put on display what he's just been saying. That's, that's what this is. Jesus, having preached the good news of the kingdom of God, having preached the good news of the year of the Lord's favor, having preached the, the abundance of, of joy and peace and rest and security that is found in him alone, he now gives to his audience an enacted parable that demonstrates the rich abundance of the life that he gives within the kingdom of God. What does this illustrate? It illustrates the, the futility of trying to find peace and rest and joy and satisfaction in our own strength, and it illustrates the rich and bountiful abundance that is found in the kingdom of God through faith in Christ. It illustrates, it illustrates Ephesians 1, doesn't it? Now, I, I, know, I know that in preaching Luke, I have gone to Ephesians 1 a lot. But we have to beat it into our heads. If there was an extended passage of Scripture that I could force you to memorize... It would be the first 10 verses of Ephesians 1. Because you understand it's, it's not believing this that draws our hearts away after 
idols that falsely promise us that we can find joy and satisfaction and security somewhere else. Listen again to how Paul describes it. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven, and things on earth. What is Paul saying? He's saying, listen, believer, to all that you have received in Jesus Christ. Look at the words that he uses. He says that every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places has now been granted to you in Jesus Christ. You are the sons of God, and sons deliberately here because it's connected to the idea of of heirs. You are an heir of heaven, he says. You have been adopted by God so that you are not just now God's people, you are God's sons. He says, in Jesus Christ, you have had all of the guilt of your sin forgiven. Through the blood of Christ, you have redemption. You have been, in other words, reconciled to God, and, and in being reconciled to God, what's that word? Lavished, he says. I mean, this is, this is a passage in which Paul almost runs out of superlatives as he tries to describe for you the magnificence of all that you receive in Jesus Christ. He is describing the year of the Lord's favor. He is describing the kingdom of God as Jesus has been preaching it at Nazareth and Capernaum and now by the sea. That's what this… That's what this catch is all about, this rich and full and bountiful abundance that is yours when your faith is in Christ. Or we could say that this miracle is a New Testament reiteration of that promise that God gave to Moses and Israel in the wilderness. What, how did he describe Canaan? Right? Remember, Canaan functions as the, as the prototypical kingdom of God. And how is it described? It's described as a land flowing with milk and honey, a place that is so far greater than than simple sustenance, a place of richness, a place of fullness, a place where every man will sit under his fig tree and under his vine. Because the creation, again, as it had in the garden, joyfully gives up its produce, and and we don't have to fight against it to obtain bread by the sweat of our brow. That's how the promised land was described, as the place of rich, abundant fullness. This miracle is the New Testament counterpart to this. Rich, abundant fullness coming up 
through Jesus Christ. With this miracle, Jesus is confronting us, confronting you, asking you, what will you put your hope in? Jesus is confronting us and asking us, will you keep trying to secure peace in your own strength, or will you cast yourself upon Him in faith and dependence? Right? Just as we've been seeing the diseased and the afflicted doing at the end of chapter 4, and as we see Simon do here, even though he doesn't really understand the command of the Lord. Right? Notice, it's, it's fascinating, notice how Simon is described here. Simon is, Simon's not an amateur. In fact, the way that, the way that that James and John are described here as being his partners would indicate that, that this isn't really just, just fishermen. This is a, a fishing corporation. Right? This is an outfit with multiple boats and, and multiple men. They know what they're doing. Right? I know a boy who loves to fish and who's gone out in the summer and fished and fished and fished, and he still hasn't caught anything, much to his chagrin. But Simon's a professional. That's why he went out at night, because he knew that during the day the, the fish go deep to avoid the heat, and they rise at, at, at night. He knew it's the most efficient way. He catches fish at night, then they're fresh at the market in the morning, and he gets the best price for it. Right? I'm, not a, I'm not a fisherman, I've, but I've heard it said that 100% of the fish are in 10% of the water. And that's why when you go to a new fishing ground, you hire a fishing guide, because he knows where those, where he knows where those holes are. Simon knows where the fish are. He's not a hobbyist. He doesn't go out at night just hoping that he's going to catch something, right? He knows what he's doing. But, but notice the contrast that's then set up. He knows what he's doing, and he still comes back with nothing. That is part of this enacted parable, isn't it? It's a metaphor, right? Maybe you hear the gospel, and you think to yourself, I really don't need that. I, I know what I'm doing. I'm okay. You hear the gospel, and you think, you know, I'm good at my job. Of course I'll find contentment and satisfaction there. I'm not an amateur. I know how to leverage my business for the greatest return. Or you might think, well, I don't really need this, this gospel. I'm, I'm good at building relationships. I really don't need anyone outside of me to make my life better. I'm surrounding myself with a good cohort of people, and, and I always know where to find more friends if I need them. Or to use our more cynical examples... And you think, I don't need this gospel. I, I know how to manipulate people. I know how to be the master of my sphere. I've done it so long that I don't even need to think about it anymore. I can press people's buttons without much thought. Maybe you are good at what you do. Maybe you do have it all figured out. Maybe you're not like the diseased and the afflicted at the end of chapter 4, people whose lives have fallen apart. Maybe your life is good and you're happy and you're in control. But you understand the point. It will still come up short. 
in the last analysis, it, it will be empty. What was the lament of the preacher in Ecclesiastes? He, he'd done it all. And it had all been vanity and, and emptiness. He'd done it all, and, and he'd, been, he'd been good at it. He'd pursued self-indulgence. He pursued wealth. He, he worked hard. He gained knowledge. He went after wisdom. Right? The, the preacher in, in Ecclesiastes is a, he's a Renaissance man. Right? If, if you met him, you would have thought you had met the most interesting man in the world. If you put it all together, how is he describing himself? Right? He's, a, he's the kind of man who, who pulls up in, a, in an Aston Martin. And he steps out beautifully dressed, a mane of silver hair. He's charming and he's witty and he's carrying a leather-bound book of great literature. This is a man who had it all and he was good at it all. But in the last analysis, what does he say? It was vanity. It was empty. It didn't give him what his heart craved. But see the parable here, to follow Christ, to depend upon Him, to trust Him as, as Simon does, is to find riches beyond your wildest imaginations. Right? Think about how Jesus describes it in Matthew 13, verse 44. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and he sells all that he has and buys that field. Or again, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and, and bought it. Those men giving up everything else because what they found in the kingdom of heaven was far greater. Those men turning away even from the good things that they already had because they knew that the kingdom of God was the place of their greatest riches. That's what lies behind verses 9 and 10 and 11. Simon and James and John becoming, not primarily here, not finding their significance here and becoming the first disciples, but, but Simon and James and John standing out here as the examples of the proper response to this glorious good news. What do they do? They leave everything and they follow Jesus. Simon Simon exclaims Isaiah's exclamation, doesn't he? When Simon sees this, he, he connects the dots and he understands that he's on holy ground. Simon understands what all of this means. He understands it means that the kingdom of heaven is breaking into history and the king himself is with him in the boat. And Simon is gripped by his inadequacy. But what's Jesus' response to him? Jesus says, don't, don't be afraid. Come with me. Maybe, maybe this morning you're grasped by your inadequacy. And this miracle, you see Jesus' glory, just like we've seen in the previous miracles, the breaking in of his supremacy. You see his command of creation, and you read this, and you stand amazed before him, but your heart this morning condemns you. 
You know how you've sinned against him, and you wonder if this gospel, as good as it is, is good for you. You see his glory here, and, and you believe what he's saying about this wonderful new reality that he is establishing, and, and you know that it is the longing of your heart, but you know how Cain-like you've been, and how restless your heart has been, and how like Cain in that restlessness you have kicked against God, and you have been determined to find rest and peace in your own strength. Perhaps you're a Christian. Perhaps you professed your faith in Christ long ago, but, but, but now you realize just how far you've slipped and, and how you've slipped into functionally finding your peace and rest and joy in something other than in Christ. Something mundane, perhaps, a, a good thing that has become an ultimate thing. Or, or maybe, maybe even a wicked thing. You realize how though you profess faith in Christ and call yourself a Christian, yet you are seeking your security at the cost of someone else, ultimately harming someone so that you can feel safe. And hearing this gospel, seeing this enacted parable, it only serves to break your heart. And, and rather than wanting to come to Jesus, you want to run away from Him. How, how could you come to Him now? But here is response to Simon and to James and to, to John. Jesus says to you, don't be afraid. Come with me. Don't be afraid. He's gracious and he's kind. He's, he's merciful and he's gentle. And he says to you, come with me and I will do you good. He says to me, give up your vain striving. He says, give up your empty, wet nets and come with me. Come into my kingdom and you will find new life, a better life, a deeper joy. And instead of being consumed with self-protection, your life will be one of joyful generosity. That's what it means, isn't it, for James and John and Simon to become fishers of men that having seen the goodness of Christ, having seen the abundance of Christ's kingdom, their lives are now to be one, not in which they are circling the wagons, trying to control their environment, trying to, trying to find their own security, but now their lives are one of freeness and openness, one in which they go and they offer this gospel freely and joyfully, and they simply long for others to come in and find what they have found. That's what this is about. This is an enacted parable to show you just how rich and abundant the kingdom of Jesus Christ is. So hear it this morning and give up all your little strategies to try and make your own life secure. Come and fall at the feet of King Jesus. Come and follow Him and trust Him. And you will find in him the greatest good. Let's pray.